Welcome back, everyone. Uh, today's tough text comes from Genesis 16, so if you want to follow along with your Bibles, I'll be reading that out today. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy, for she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. So in 2016, elite athletes, officials and sports fans from all over the world flooded into Rio de Janeiro the Olympic Games. They travelled from the airport to the city along a motorway that was emblazoned with posters, colourful posters celebrating the Games, welcoming them to Brazil. Festive though they might have been, these bright banners hit a part of the city that was far less attractive. Beyond the metres high barriers lay numerous favelas. Low socioeconomic communities, crammed with people living on next to nothing, rife with drugs, subject to frequent, brutal police raids. As the world's gaze was captured by an elite few pushing at the boundaries of human achievement, many of them awash in lucrative sponsorship deals, life for people in these communities actually worsened. Some of them were even evicted to make way for new developments. <coughs> Alongside the glorious Olympic spectacle, they were invisible. So this brings me to today's text about Hagar. 
because the times that I've heard this preached, the focus has been on the eventual birth of Isaac, on how God faithfully gave Abraham and Sarah a child in fulfilment of a promise made long before and in spite of barrenness and advanced age. Or occasionally we might hear about God's promises to Ishmael, this idea that God is faithful even to the child who's not ultimately the fulfilment of the covenant with Abraham, but born as a result of human impatience. But what about Hagar? Because it's hard to get away from the fact that this is a story about sexual exploitation, about a massive imbalance between a powerless slave and her privileged owners that's abused. Sarah comes out looking cruel and Abraham looks weak at best. And even worse, once Hagar has left her abusive context, God's messenger tells her to return and to submit to her abusers once more. And it's this, I believe, that truly qualifies this as a tough text. Because we can account for the violence and for the callousness of human actors in the story to a certain degree by remembering that sometimes the text is simply descriptive. So it tells us what's happening, it depicts the realities of human fallenness without necessarily condoning what it describes. Or we could turn to context and we could consider that actually using slaves as surrogates wasn't an uncommon practice for the time and it was even a lawful way of obtaining an, of obtaining an heir. We don't want to impose contemporary ethical standards on the text, and this is a concession that we readily make when it comes to other historical events and figures. So we celebrate Thomas More, for example, for being ahead of his time when he chose to give his daughters the same level of education that he gave to his son. Uh, but we don't vilify him when he included slavery in his account of an ideal, utopian, imaginary society. So we try to judge events within the context of their time. But this is God acting here, not messed up human beings. Today, victims of domestic and family violence would never be counselled to return to their persecutors. So how do we make sense of God instructing Hagar to return? Is Hagar simply the collateral damage a sad footnote in a much bigger story that concerns the establishment of the Israelite nation. And Hagar's suffering is hardly indirect either. It's at the hands of Abraham, who's God's choice, God's choice to father the nation of Israel, and also Sarah, to whom Abraham delegates his own power and responsibility. And the reason that Hagar is forced into surrogacy which in today's terms would be considered rape, is because God has so far withheld from Abraham and Sarah the children that were required to fulfil the promise. So it seems unbelievably cruel, and this, this isn't a God that I recognise. It's not the end of the story, however. It gets worse. Hagar returns and her character goes quiet for a while because the spotlight's on Abraham and on Sarah and on the joy of Isaac's conception and birth. And 14 years have passed at this point. And we can speculate over what happened during those years. Uh, perhaps Hagar was able to keep her distance from Sarah. Possibly Abraham left her alone now that the needed 
the much sought after son had been produced. But there's more grief in store for her. Because following Isaac's birth, Sarah wants to eliminate Ishmael as a rival for her own son's inheritance. And she calls for Hagar and for Ishmael to be cast out. And again, Abraham appears weak, although troublingly, he receives assurances from God as he sends them both away. We read this follow-up story in Genesis 21, as well as God's provision for them in the wilderness and the promise that Ishmael, like Isaac, will be made into a great nation. And this is the last that we hear of Hagar. Now, this story is really hard to read with contemporary eyes. Awake to the Me Too movement, steeped in dystopian accounts of reproductive and sexual violence like The Handmaid's Tale. So in coming to the text, I feel indignant on Hagar's behalf. So what if she's promised loads of descendants? How does that make up for the way in which she was personally treated? It's not enough for me to know that Ishmael will have a great future. What about her? Is this saying that women are fulfilled so long as their children flourish, regardless of the hardships in their own lives? So I have to work really hard to strip away all that indignation, born of a different time, and to read how Hagar responds. She's encouraged. God has seen her. While Sarah and Abraham refer to her only as the slave, God calls her by name. And in return, Hagar gives God a unique name, Elroy, the God who sees me. The God who sees me. Hagar isn't a nameless slave to God, a means to obtaining an heir. She's a person with a name. God sees us calls us by name, even when we feel overlooked or invisible. And I come to this text as well with the conviction that it's Holy Scripture. And this doesn't mean that I can't critique it, that I can't squirm when I read it, that I have to swallow all frustration with the story, or even accept every interpretation that's presented to me via a sermon or a commentary. I think God permits... I think God even invites us to have all of those responses and more as we wrestle with the tough texts of the Bible. But it does mean, and this is to return to a point that Paul emphasised in the first sermon in this series, that I'm to look for what is life-giving in the text. We can deconstruct the narrative forever, and that's a tendency that comes very easily to academics. But if we're committed to Scripture being the life-giving word of God then that means looking for what it has to tell us about God and about us. The story of Hagar and the conception of Ishmael can be read in contrast with that of Sarah and the conception of Isaac. This is what Paul does when he tells it in Galatians 4. So Paul draws out an allegory whereby Ishmael, who's born of the slave Hagar, represents life under the covenant of the law in slavery contrasted with Isaac, who was born through the promise and and represents freedom. He's essentially claiming that Christians are the true inheritors of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And Paul makes this point to illustrate the meaning of the gospel for his Jewish audience, not because this is the only way that we can understand the text. Because narratives can mean more than one thing. 
Abraham and Isaac, and to a lesser extent, Sarah, might be the leading characters in the tale of Israel's history, of God's fulfilment of the covenant made with Abraham. But the story of Hagar and of Ishmael is no trivial side plot or dead end along the way. The one who gives God a unique name is a foreigner, homeless, powerless, cast aside by those who had responsibility for her, dishonoured according to any custom of the time. God is the God who sees and who sees not only the favoured, the patriarchs or the chosen people, but the excluded and the outcasts. And how clear is this when we look at the life of Christ? How time and time again he passed up the company of the wealthy and of the powerful in favour of the rejected lepers, of the despised tax collectors, the woman at the well that no one else would have anything to do with. It's a reminder that God's blessings are for all creation and not just a select few. So perhaps that's why Hagar is especially celebrated among some groups. Advocates for gender and for racial equality have championed Hagar not as a victim, but as a survivor. She's a symbol of hope for many of these groups. And there are other readings of this text that help me as well, so different perspectives that I wouldn't have come to on my own. Some scholars challenge the portrayal of Sarah and Hagar as rivals, for example. They argue that this actually runs counter to what we might expect in, uh, in the desert and in a male-dominated society. The harsh reality of such a life means that women would likely have cooperated for survival. And I remember that while scripture is the trustworthy word of God, it nevertheless comes to us through fallible human authors. If we consider that Genesis was written during or after the exile, the story of Israel's origin and history set down at a time when they desperately needed to cling to their national identity, then the focus of this story on Abraham and Isaac makes sense. It's all the more noteworthy, actually, that Hagar receives as much space as she does. If I'm really honest, the lot that is dealt to Hagar in this story remains a sticking point for me. It's a tension that I can't entirely resolve. I grieve to read that even after leaving, she was compelled to return, and I can't quite fathom why God would ask this of her. I just don't fully understand, and I don't take that dissonance lightly either. But I do trust in the overwhelming witness that the scriptures, taken as a whole, provide of a God who is loving and just and who takes the side of the oppressed and the weak and the powerless. And I'm thankful that Hagar's story is told and that her pain and her suffering is recognised and recorded for posterity here. And I read the text as a challenge also because it's hypocritical of me to be outraged on Hagar's behalf and to be frustrated with God for not doing more for her when I turn my own heart against similar injustices. Because there are plenty of Hagar's around in the world today, aren't there? And if there's redemption in Hagar's story, it is in the fact that God sees her. We can be sure that God sees the child born into one of the many families around the world, living below the poverty line, struggling to provide enough food for survival. 
God sees the mother who's forced to give birth in offshore detention without access to proper medical care and facing an uncertain future. And God sees the victims of domestic and family violence and of sexual exploitation. He is El Roy, the God who sees. At a crucial juncture in the foundation story of Israel, an angel of the Lord appears to an Egyptian slave woman and says, in essence, do not be afraid. You will give birth to a son and he will become great. Does that sound familiar? We've just celebrated Easter, but a few weeks earlier on the liturgical calendar that many Christian traditions celebrate, we celebrate the Annunciation, the appearance of an angel to Mary with a similar message. And this year, Hagar was already on my mind as I read Luke's account. And I'm encouraged by the parallels between the two narratives, but I'm even more encouraged by the differences. Hagar and Sarah are presented as rivals, the mothers of sons who are half-brothers, whose relationship would be hostile. There are two mothers in Luke's account also, both bearing sons of a great calling, but there's no rivalry, rivalry there. They are friends. And it's the younger, more vulnerable mother who's the star of the tale this time around. In both accounts, God speaks to the father as well. But the outcome in the gospel narrative is very different. Where Abraham shirks his responsibility and casts Hagar out, Joseph stands alongside Mary and offers his support and protection. Hagar has no choice in her childbearing role. And Sarah and Abraham name her only as the slave. But Mary joyfully gives her consent. May it be to you as may it be to me as you have said, she says. And with praise on her lips, she declares herself to be the servant of God. In Mary's story, we glimpse the honour due also to Hagar, and we recognise the God that we know from the scriptures, who is always on the side of the vulnerable. Let's pray. Elroy, you are the God who sees me, who sees us. Thank you for not just being concerned with the successful, the strong, the powerful, the ones in the spotlight in the eyes of the world. Help us to live as people who are seen by you. We're sorry for all the times in which we failed to see the invisible and the overlooked. Guide our hearts and our attention to be more like yours. Amen.